There is an old phrase, uh, a catchphrase, if you will, usually spoken in a joyful and a positive way. In fact, I heard my grandmother say this. You may have heard a grandmother say this. We don't say it so much anymore, but the phrase is, well, wonders never cease. You know, that's the kind of thing you say when someone shows up as a surprise, you know, at a birthday party or something, and you just did not expect them even to be in town. Well, wonders never cease. And I remember, again, my grandmother would, would pop that phrase out from time to time. But as Yahweh sent plague upon plague upon plague, I wonder if there wasn't someone in Egypt who was wondering, will these wonders of God never cease? Because when you get into the thick of it, the plagues do seem to go on and on. We have talked about three of them so far. The first plague, the Nile, and the waters of Egypt turned to blood. And then the second plague, the frogs coming up into the kitchens and the bedrooms. And of course, we skipped ahead on Sunday to talk about the seventh plague, the plague of hail. Well, tonight we're gonna go through plague number three all the way to plague number eight. I'm just gonna unload them. We're gonna get through them, but stay with me. I, I don't want this to be a getting through process. I invite you to open your Bible. Get a pad, a paper, and a pen out if you need to take notes or if doodling helps you listen. But let's dig in because there is some truly rich teaching here that I believe the Lord has for us tonight. Picking up right where we left off in chapter eight, verse 16, following the Plague of the frogs. Now we come to the third plague, which is the plague of gnats. Verse 16, then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and on beast, all the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats. Now that's, again, amazing. These guys are complete morons. You know, the water is turned to blood rather than trying to turn it back. They just go for more blood. You know, frogs come throughout the land, and rather than try and drive the frogs back with their so-called magic arts, they invite more frogs. And now, rather than try to get rid of the gnats, they say, maybe we can bring some more too. It's unbelievable. But they couldn't. In fact, it says they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Now, if your Bible doesn't say gnats, you may have a translation that says mosquitoes or one that says lice, and it could be any one of these three, or actually a, a variation of these, the word is kanim. And in Hebrew, kanim means mosquitoes, lice. It comes from the root word in Hebrew, which means to fasten, as in to pinch or nip at, as in a little bug fastening itself to you. These gnats, these creatures, these pests, these little nippers, if you will, were common in Egypt, in this day, in fact, Philo wrote that this particular species of gnats was barely visible, but had a bite that caused a painful irritation of the skin. 
had a bunch of teenagers on a mission trip one year in Honduras. And we scuttled out to the island of Roatan. I think I've mentioned Roatan before. Beautiful Caribbean island. And we spent the last two or three days just taking it easy and, and having a little fun before coming on home. And I remember the first day out on the beach of Roatan, beautiful white sand beaches, clear blue water rolling up on the shore, just island paradise, right? And after about five or 10 minutes out on the beach, everybody started to itch and scratch. And our guide said, oh yeah, sand fleas. Couldn't see them, but man, you felt them. And by the next day, every single one in our group, bunch of, you know, for the most part, I think that group were all pretty much white. By the next day, we were all white with little red dots everywhere. So same idea here, these, these insects that usually showed up in Egypt in the October, November timeframe. So, so what we would consider the fall of the year, but right now, based on our best understanding of when the plagues showed up, and we base this off of when the wheat harvest and the, and the spelt harvest happens, and I talked about that last time, it's probably February, March. So we're in the opposite time of the year. They should not be showing up at all, but now, not only do the gnats show up, but they cover the land. And there is no intervention by any Egyptian God, little g. And you know what? The little g is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. There was a care, A-K-E-R, the God of the horizon. Well, he was apparently off busy doing something else. There was Amun, God of the wind. He could have blown the gnats out of there, but he didn't show up. How about Geb, God of the earth? And all the dust of the earth became gnats, so clearly he was impotent. I like this one, Ha. They had a God named Ha. Ha was Lord of the Western Desert. All he had to do was show up and go, Ha, you know, and make this go away. Well, he doesn't show up. Then there's Shu, the God of wind and air. But apparently the gnats were making him Shu. <laughs> and then there's Weneg, W-E-N-E-G, Weneg or Weneg, I don't know how you even say it. God of sky and death and none of these gods had anything to say about the gnats in the land. And again, we see the magicians didn't even try to replicate this one. In fact, just two plagues in now, they throw in the towel. They're done. They can't do anything more. They had a, a way of replicating water to blood and a way of uh, maybe drawing a, a little froggy or two out of the Nile, but they couldn't handle this one. And verse 19 goes on to say, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Interesting. The Egyptian magicians could manipulate water and frogs to some degree by their secret arts, either demonic or just by tricks, but they couldn't bring, listen, they couldn't bring life from the dust of the ground. Only Yahweh can do that. Only God can take the dust. Now, now, scientists tell us dust contains silicon compounds and carbon, iron, uh, water ice, methane, ammonia, contains organic molecules like formaldehyde. <laughs> and such dust clouds are often found even between stars in our galaxies so that astronomers think that all the stars and planets were formed from these dust compounds. Well, of course. Genesis chapter one, 
tells us. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And by the way, that's, that's Genesis 1, but it's, I think in the verse list that you might see down below, it says Genesis 1.1. That's not Genesis 1.1. No, that's, uh, where is it, Les? <laughs> He's like, what, you're gonna call me on this? Where is it, that, uh, Genesis 2, verse 7. It's Genesis 2-7 where the Lord God created from the dust, formed man from the dust of the ground. And now God takes the dust and goes, gnats. But again, as tiny and maybe invisible as these little gnats were, they were life. Life from the dust. No big deal to God. If he can make an entire human being out of dust, he can make a little gnat out of dust. And the magicians cry, this is the finger of God. The finger of God. It's not the last time we'll see the finger of God do a little divine handwriting. In Exodus 31, 18, when he had finished speaking with them upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. He made gnats in judgment. Now he brings the law both by the finger of God. Skipping ahead many centuries to the days of Daniel, when Daniel was in Babylon, and there's a drunken feast going on, and you got the buzzed Belshazzar, the, actually the king's uh, son, Nabonidus, was king of Babylon. He's off fighting wars. He didn't stay home much. Belshazzar was there. He has this big drunken feast one night in the palace and he calls for all the vessels and articles, the chalices from the Jewish temple to be brought in so they could drink out of those and it's a horribly blasphemous party and in Daniel chapter five, verse five, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing and we're told in the next verse that his hip joints went slack, which I always point out means that Belshazzar, the great king of Babylon, wet himself in fear and terror at seeing the finger of God. And the Lord in that moment wrote in judgment of Belshazzar and Babylon and that very night, the city was invaded by the Medes and the Persians. Taken out, Belshazzar was killed. The finger of God writes judgment for Babylon. The finger of God writes the law of Moses for the people. The finger of God brings the dust into the gnats. But the last time, the last time we see the finger of God is to me the most compelling in all the Bible. You've probably heard the story. Let me just read it to you. John chapter eight, verse two tells us, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. 
And that's the last time we see the finger of God writing anything specifically in the scriptures. And I think at this point, at the first point, Jesus bends down and begins to write in the ground. And they push him on it. They press him on the issue. What should we do with her? And that's when he stands up and says, let the first among you who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends back down and he writes again. And this second time, I think the accusers of this woman began to take note of what Jesus was writing. Now, granted, scholars and students across 2,000 years have wondered what exactly Jesus wrote. We can only guess, but the word wrote used twice here is agraphon from grapho, and, and it can mean to write, but it can also mean to write against. So we've wondered, could it be that Jesus was writing against the scribes and Pharisees, listing particular sins that each one of them, as they saw the sin, would go, <laughs> Maybe not wanting to admit it out loud, but they see it written on the ground before them and they become convicted. There's a passage, and this is fascinating to me, a prophetic word out of Jeremiah that gives us even more compelling evidence that this is exactly what Jesus was doing, that he was writing words of condemnation, words of judgment, words calling out at least their sin, seeking to convict the hearts of these men. Jeremiah 17, 13, which reads, O Lord, listen, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down or written on the earth because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. That blows my mind. Why? Because the very day before, Jesus had just said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John chapter seven, verse 38. That is Jeremiah prophesied. They're gonna be written down in the earth, those who forsake the living water. Jesus says, I am the living water. Come to me and drink, all who are thirsty. And the next day we see Jesus riding on the ground as the scribes and Pharisees are seeking to condemn this woman. Well, whatever he was writing, he wrote with compassion. Because in verse nine, it says, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. That should tell us something about wisdom, by the way. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus, by the way, perfectly keeps the law here because the law required at least two people, at least two witnesses to bring a condemnation and there were none. And so Jesus can rightly say, I do not condemn you either. From now on, sin no more. Romans chapter eight, verse one says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So all that to say with the plague, the finger of God wrote judgment. At Sinai, he wrote the law. In Babylon, he again wrote judgment. But at the temple, his writing, whatever it does, resulted in grace and not just for the woman. 
grace for the Pharisees and the scribes because it gave them more time to go away and think about where their hearts were before the Lord. And I wonder, I truly do, if any of those accusers were convicted enough to be saved themselves. That's how Jesus works. You see, John 1.17 is less already read for us. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Never compromises on the truth, but he always brings it with grace. Perfect. By the way, they say when you point a finger at someone, three fingers are pointing back at yourself. In the case of the Lord, what does God see when he points at you? Nail prints. Nail prints. God looks through the blood of Jesus so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Back to the plague. So this finger of God, the magicians call it, and I think they were right. But verse 20 now says, now the Lord said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. By the way, he's gonna meet him in the morning by the water because Pharaoh's always at the water in the morning. Why? Two reasons, I already told you. One, he goes down there to offer sacrifice to the Nile God. But two, to cleanse, to bathe. The Egyptians bathed at least daily, at least daily. Sometimes more often than that, they were meticulously clean people it was in the culture. They bathed every single day, if not more. They shaved their entire bodies. No, no hair on the body at all because they wanted to remain ritualistically and religiously pure. And I love it because the blood, the frogs, and now the gnats did nothing to support their pretentious piety. God is wiping out religion. He is wiping out false gods. He's taken away everything that someone can say, oh, I've... I've made myself clean. No, you haven't. You got gnats all over you, man. You got frogs in your bed, blood in your cup. You're a mess. We need grace, don't we? Well, verse 21 going on, the Lord says, for if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But, verse 22, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. God says tomorrow this sign will occur. Tell Pharaoh, so Moses tells Pharaoh. Then the Lord, verse 24, did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and on the houses of, or in the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. This is now right on the back of the gnats. I mean, there's, there's no time here between these two plagues. The gnats seemingly go away and the flies come. It's just one after the other. These two are pounding the people. And there was nothing that Kafir could do about it. Or he's also called Kefri, the Egyptian god of resurrection. Now I mention him because he was depicted 
as a scarab. That is a flying beetle. And some surmise that perhaps the flies here, the word in the Hebrew means flying insects. So this could be, these could have been scarabs, which would have been horrifying. Swarms of scarabs, which were, again, common to Egypt, but not in swarms, not like this. And so this scarab, you've seen, if you've seen the mummy, then, then you've seen the, the scarab idea, and we find these all entombed scarabs made of, or, or, or gems made fashioned in the shape of scarabs that are in mummified tombs of pharaohs and, and mummies throughout Egypt. And it's because the scarab depicted kafir or kefri, that Egyptian god of resurrection, to which I say so much for Egyptian mummies rising from the dead. Not gonna happen. They couldn't even stop this plague of swarms of flies. Now, and we've previously talked about the fact that with this fourth plague now, so three have gone by, the first set of three, remember it comes in sets, three and then three and then three, and then finally we'll have darkness and then the death of the firstborn. And the first set has now gone by with the beginning of this second set, the fourth plague, Israel is now set apart for the first time. Now, some say, oh, no, Israel wasn't affected at all. I think the Bible's clear that this is the first time God actually sets apart his people, that they did have to suffer through the plague of the Nile turned to blood and the frogs everywhere, that they did have to suffer perhaps even with the gnats, but with the flies, God said, stop. Why? Well, we surmise that they experienced the first three plagues as a wake-up call. Hey, you're not believing so I'm gonna show you what I'm gonna do, give you a little experience here. Do you want this? Or do you wanna be on the side of the Lord? So an alarm goes off with the first three plagues and suddenly now the Israelites are completely distinguished from Egypt in terms of the plagues. And my friends, there should always be a distinction between God's people and Egypt. Always a distinction between God's people and the world. I've said it before, I am as guilty as anybody. We still look too much like the world. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, God said, I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean. Note this, unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. Interesting, because he set apart his people, he made them distinct against the swarming things. When the swarms of flies came, God said, no more, my people are different. They are not to be in and amongst the flies or the Lord of the flies, Beelzebul, is another name for Satan. Peter glommed onto this, 1 Peter 1.14, he said, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And let me just point out that when Peter says, don't be conformed to the former lusts, that's not just sexual lust. It's not just a lust for power or a lust for pleasure. It's a lust for self. My former life, Rick was number one. Rick mattered more than any of y'all. In my following life after Jesus, suddenly I realize I am called to put myself 
secondary to my brothers and sisters. The former lust is no more. What distinguishes us as followers of Jesus from the rest of the world? Peter quoted Leviticus 11. He said, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that is our Christian calling to look different, to act different, to be different than the world. Not, not we're not out there, but just to live out the fruit of the Spirit, to pursue righteousness and goodness, things that are loving and compassionate, kindness and gentleness, go down the fruit of the Spirit. We're called to live a way that if we just followed Jesus, it would set us apart. Instead of trying to look like where we came from. We're called to follow him. But Pharaoh, note this, in response, does what the world always does. He calls for a compromise. Verse 25. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. Now, remember, the swarms of flies have now been warned, but they haven't come yet. Moses and Aaron leave, and we're told that the Lord Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Lord did so. The Lord did bring the swarms of flies. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. And that's his compromise. Remember, God commanded, I want you to depart for three days, come three days out into the wilderness and worship me there. First, it was just let my people go. Then it was let my people go that they may come out three days into the wilderness to worship me, establishing a distance, and Pharaoh's compromise is go sacrifice to your God within the land. Watch this, verse 26. But Moses said, it is not right to do so. For we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is abomination to the Egyptians. Our style is not your style. If we sacrifice what's an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. God said, go three days. We're going to go three days. But Pharaoh is calling for a compromise. Okay, go ahead and worship your God, but do it here. Do it here in the land. Pharaoh is calling for a compromise of disobedience to what God had already commanded. God said, go three days out to worship. Pharaoh says, do it right here. You know what? It doesn't matter why God commanded it. It doesn't matter how great our understanding of the commandment. Compromising the word of the Lord is disobedience, period. Saying, I know what the Bible says, I just don't like it, is disobedience to say, well, there are aspects of the Bible I think are great, but there are some things I think are too judgmental. It doesn't matter what you think. To compromise the word of God is disobedience to the word of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must not compromise the word of truth. And you know what? That doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. Standing on what is right and true, you can, you can say the same thing, the same exact sentence. You can declare what the Lord says about some certain sin issue in our culture, and you can either speak it like a jerk or 
you can let your speech be seasoned with grace. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You don't have to bash someone over the head with the truth, but you are called to speak the truth, not to compromise the truth. Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all into him who is the head, even Christ. That's how a Christian matures. Not compromising, but maintaining the truth in love. Caring enough to speak what is true with words that are gracious and loving and caring and compassionate, but not devoid of the truth. We are nowhere in the Bible told to compromise in love. We're told to speak the truth in love. And by the way, the truth is not my personal conviction on mask wearing whether to wear or not to wear. And I already know some are on a very strong side against wearing masks at all, and others are on a very strong side about wearing masks, and I don't find it anywhere in the Bible. What I find in Scripture is that the truth is God's word. Mask wearing is how we show love to each other, how we handle this situation. But don't elevate mask wearing or not wearing to the level of God's truth. Don't let that be a standard that divides. It's amazing to me because it was weeks ago that I did a word bite and if you saw it, you know I held up a picture. It was a drawn, a sketched picture. Three people on one side of the page, three on the other. The three on the one side were wearing masks and the three on the other were not wearing masks and they were all shouting at each other. And I thought, wow. And that was early on. That was before all the articles had been shot all over Facebook and emailed everywhere, and we're all talking about to wear masks, not to wear masks. I'm like, I don't care. It's a mask. And I'm even going on about it right now. You know what Jesus said? Listen, Jesus said, John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you which means I love you more than your opinion about a mask. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go. They're still in this, you know, he's still trying to get the compromise. I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me, he says. So he's grasping here. First he says, okay, you can do your worship service, do it right here. Moses says, no, we gotta go out three days in the wilderness. And then Pharaoh goes, okay, you can go, but don't go very far away. Stay close to Egypt. And the devil would say, stay close to the world. You can go to church. Go ahead and go to church. Just don't be a fanatic about it. You know, people can paint their faces blue and green and wear insane wigs and scream and yell and people will say, that's awesome but a Christian brings a Bible into a coffee shop and is called a fanatic? And the devil uses that against well-meaning Christians, uses that against the church to make us think, oh yeah, I don't wanna be seen as nutty here. I don't wanna be one of those freakish followers of Jesus. You can wear a cross, the devil would say, just don't take one up. And so, some Christians quietly follow at a distance indistinct, 
close to the world. But God said, be holy because I am holy. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I'm, I'm sitting on this one for a minute just to say this. Brothers and sisters, the hour is late. It is time for us to be fully devoted disciples. Followers of Jesus, uncompromising in the truth and yet overwhelming with the love. Verse 30, so Moses went out from Pharaoh. Actually, verse 29, I didn't read that one yet, but Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord and Yahweh did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. And when God cleans it up, he cleans it up completely. Remember that. When you give your life to Jesus, grace isn't mostly gonna save you except for the handful of flies that are still in the cupboard of your life. Not one remains. He cleans them all out. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and he did not let the people go. And this is now the fifth time Pharaoh has hardened his heart or his heart has become hardened. This is all on Pharaoh, gang. Chapter nine, verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord, not just the finger now, the hand of the Lord will come with very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. By the way, some try to say that there were no camels in Egypt at that time. Not true, there were dromedaries. There was a version of camels, and so the word fits, it's, it's absolutely correct. But, verse four, Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. He's drawn the line. The Lord set a definite time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. It's not just the finger again. Now it is the hand of the Lord that strikes. Back in Exodus chapter seven, verse four. When Pharaoh, God said, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Note that. God's hand is gonna do both. He's gonna lay his hand on Egypt for judgment and the same hand he's going to bring the children of Israel out. To the one, it's the hand of judgment. To the other one, it is the hand of salvation. And that's how it is with the Lord. Depending on where you stand with God, how different the hand of God will look. I think of my own father's hand on my birthday handing me a gift and that same hand that could bring quite a swat. Depending on my 
rebellion toward him or my obedience as a child? One was the hand of grace and generosity. The other one was the hand of punishment. Same hand. Revelation chapter one, verse 17. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he, that is Jesus, in all his glory, placed his right hand on me. He said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus lays his hand on John and restores him. And this is the grace of God. And this is the power of God that that raises up even as it were from the dead. But the same hand also brings judgment to those in rebellion. I, I think of my son, Corey. He didn't like me to tell stories of him when he was young, so we won't say how old he was. So he was a kid, real little kid, and it was a time in our life where I was real busy doing a lot of youth ministry, and there were many nights during the week where I was coming in, coming home after Corey was already in bed. And one night, Cheryl was tucking Corey in, and, and he said to her, he said, tell dad to come in when he gets home. And Cheryl said, well, honey, you're gonna be sound asleep by the time dad gets home tonight. And Corey said, I don't know he's here. Cheryl said, how will you know he's here? And Corey said, and I never forgot this. He said, I'll feel his big warm hand on my head. And Cheryl told me that when I got home that night. And I did, every time I would come home, I would come home late if Corey and Hannah and Hayden, later on, Naomi and David specifically, when they were so little, If I came in after they were in bed, I would go in their rooms to say goodnight. They'd be sound asleep, but I'd lay my hand on their head. I had no idea Corey knew. He knew the father's hand was on his head. Isaiah 66, verse 14 says, then you will see and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. The plague of pestilence against the livestock of Egypt shows us another devastation of the Egyptian economy. Realize as all this is going down, it wasn't just the discomfort of Egypt. It was a destruction bit by bit of different aspects of Egyptian economy. Their economy is tanking. And at the same time, at least two more gods are taken out, Apis, the bullheaded God, as the livestock is dying right and left, and Hathor, the cow-headed goddess. Who made up these idols? I don't know. But a god and a goddess with heads like cows, and these two get mooed down with all the rest. You know what's surprising? You know what's surprising is that for all this taking place and for this plague against the livestock, it is surprising to me that the Israelites forget all about this when they forge a golden calf. The miracle, the wonder was right in front of them. And as we'll talk about later in Exodus, they see wonder upon wonder upon wonder. As an Israelite, you might have wondered, well, wonders never cease. God keeps moving Miracle after miracle and wonder after wonder, and yet they forget this very simple diseased livestock situation, and they turn around and they create, who knows, perhaps it was Apis 
or Hathor, the golden calf. Amazing. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, take for yourself handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils. This is plague number six. Boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and they stood before Pharaoh. By the way, this comes without warning. They didn't tell Pharaoh what they were gonna do. They didn't warn him if he didn't let the people go, this would happen. Every third plague in the sets of three came with no warning whatsoever. And so in this third, second set, third plague, there's no warning. They just take soot from a kiln before Pharaoh. Moses threw it into the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. And once again, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Yahweh now completely distinguishes this plague from the previous plague of gnats and flies and pestilence. Understand, these are not rolling outcomes of one right into the other, with the exception of we saw the gnats and the flies come back to back. But people have tried to say that one plague caused the next one, which caused the next one. It was just a disastrous rolling kind of natural occurrences. Not so. Not so. This is very distinct. Moses and Aaron are to go to a kiln, get soot, go before Pharaoh and throw it into the sky. And then as they do, boils begin to appear all over all the people throughout the land. And by the way, this is a new thing because with this plague, this is the first time human flesh is directly afflicted. What about the gnats biting? Well, that's perhaps, obviously would be a gross affliction, but the Bible doesn't indicate that. It's not until the sixth plague, the plague of the boils, now that the flesh itself is being ravaged in these plagues. The word for boil in the Hebrew is shechen. And it can be translated ulcer, inflammation, eruption, gross. But it's derived from a Hebrew stem that means to be hot. So we're not just talking about pimples. We're talking about hot boils. We're talking about painful. And Sarna says probably referring to the skin ulcerations and malignant pustules that characterize such things as anthrax. In fact, anthrax today is the closest parallel that we can draw to the way these boils were described, showing up all over the skin as these people were dying in horrible pain and, and, and feeling this horrible pain on their skin throughout the land. With the boils, the Egyptians' chief god, Amon-Ra, their creator god, is being called out. Now, Ra is gonna be called out even more potently with the 10th plague. We'll get there, not tonight. But the ancient texts of Egypt describe Amon-Ra this way as the one who dissolves evils and dispels ailments, a physician who heals. Where was Ra when the boils were breaking out on all the Egyptians? He wasn't a physician who healed then. And then, of course, there was Thoth. Thoth was the god of the healing arts. (laughs) 
He's nowhere to be found. Sekhmet, the lion-headed goddess who both created and ended epidemics, according to Egyptian theology, she's not available to help in this tragic situation. But the most intriguing with the boils was the Egyptian god Typhon. Typhon. The Lord had said, note this back in verse 8, take handfuls of soot, of soot from the kiln. And it's not a kiln, just any kiln, it's the kiln. There's a definite article there. Take handfuls of soot from the kiln. Note this, the Egyptians sacrificed red bulls, specifically red bulls, and sometimes human beings on the grate of Typhon or the furnace of Typhon. Their priests then took the ashes from that sacrifice and they would throw them into the air, believing that the skin of the person on whom this ash fell was made safe from all defilement and all disease. Sickness was taken care of. God says, take some ash from the kiln and throw it in the air before Pharaoh. He'll know what you're doing. He'll know what this looks like. Looks like the Egyptian god Typhon. And yet, note this, and it's just, these are nitty-gritty things to point out, but I think it's important. Moses and Aaron most likely did not take ash from the furnace or the grate of Typhon. Not from that one. Because the word that is used for kiln here, kibson in the Hebrew, was the common mud brick kiln of the Hebrew slaves. Take, take soot from the kiln, the slave's kiln. Throw that soot into the air and judgment comes down. This is a complete in your face to all the healing gods so-called of Egypt. And now for the first time since the plagues began, verse 12, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. God warned. He said, Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But he hasn't, not yet. Six times we've seen Pharaoh harden his heart or his heart get hardened. This is the first time where God actually himself hardens Pharaoh's heart. We talked about that quite a bit in our last study on Sunday. In fact, from verse 13 now down through the end of the chapter, we studied Sunday morning the account of the plague of hail and the hardening of the heart. And we made that comparison. That just like the human heart is progressively hardened by sin, so the hard, cold hail is formed and crystallized. It's, it's a very similar process. The adding to the hardening of the heart, that sinful plaque buildup on the spirit of a man or a woman that hardens the heart against God. Now, I, I mentioned something on Sunday, and this is the one thing out of this section that I want to point out, and then we're going to skip ahead to finish up for tonight. But in this section, I mentioned on Sunday that Pharaoh's confession in verse 27, chapter 9, verse 27, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time, <laughs> this time. The Lord is the righteous one. I and my people are wicked ones. Yeah, yeah, my bad. He gives this confession, and a little further down, verse 30, Moses says clearly, as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. In other words, confession bogus. 
You're confessing the sin, but there is no repentance. Well, I told you Sunday there are eight such confessions in the Bible. From here all the way to the end, we see eight times the phrase, I have sinned. Just eight times where it's directly spoken. I have sinned. In the Hebrew, it's hatati. And we see this coming from Job. Job chapter seven, verse 20. And it's, we're not, it's not really a confession. Because at that point in Job's many soliloquies in that book, he says, you can read it in your Bible, I have sinned, but we think it's not I have sinned, but have I sinned? Rather than actual confession, it's a demanding confession. Have I sinned? Job is still at the point of that, at that place of saying, I don't even know what I did wrong. And so he says, I have sinned, but it's in a question form. I have sinned? And then we see Pharaoh here in chapter nine, verse 27, with clearly a dubious confession. I have sinned. We will see Balaam, Numbers 22, 34, give a clearly double-minded confession when he says to the Lord, I have sinned, but he is still intending to make some good money off the Israelites. He's still intending to call down curses. So it's, it's a double-minded confession. And then Achan. Joshua chapter seven, verse 20, who takes some of the spoils of war, and this is a whole story. All of these are just entire stories in and of themselves, but Achan disobeys God and lies about it and hides his disobedience, and when he finally confesses, I have sinned, it's, it's a doubtful confession. I've sinned, I've been caught. And then we see in 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul, King Saul, who gives a disingenuous confession. I, I have sinned, Samuel, pray for me, he says. But if you read it in context, he's not, he's confessing, but his heart's not there. Then we see David, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David says, I have sinned. And it's with Bathsheba. And it's when Nathan the prophet sent to him and, and he's found out and it all comes to light. I, I have sinned, but my friends, it's a delayed confession. So we've got a demanding confession, dubious, double-minded, doubtful, disingenuous, a delayed confession, all these different confessions in the Hebrew scriptures, six of them. And then we come to the New Testament. The phrase, I have sinned, is only used twice. In the entire New Testament, it's hamartion or harmaton. And it literally is, uh, I have sinned, just like hatati, Matthew 27, verse four, we get it coming from Judas. And it's a despairing confession. I have sinned. Well, was Judas repentant? No. He confessed. He knew he'd sinned. He declares his wrongdoing. And the problem with all of these confessions, the first seven of eight, the problem is, with the possible exception of David, it was confession without repentance. Oh yeah, I sinned, sinned big. Yep, like I said, my bad. Or it comes with guilt-ridden sorrow as with Judas, but no God-given contrition. There's no repentance. Sinner, oh yeah, I'm a drunk. Oh yeah, I'm a sexual addict, that's me. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah, I got stoned last night. I'm a, I confess, means nothing if it's not accompanied with a sorrowful heart of repentance. 
It's important to understand that. It's not the sorrow of a guilty heart or the, or the heart that's trying to avoid punishment. It's the sorrow of the repentant heart. And Paul describes it perfectly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret. But, and that is to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas had the sorrow of the world. When he said, I have sinned, he had sinned. That was a confession, but there was no repentance. He went out and hung himself in his shame and in his guilt. But the last I have sinned in the Bible. It's in Luke chapter 15, verse 18. And again, if we're following this just chronologically, not chronologically, but book by book through, we come to Luke 15, 18, and we find a devoted confession. And it comes from the prodigal son. In Luke 15, 18, he, he finally comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger? And verse 18, the son says, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. There's the confession. Here comes the repentance. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That's repentance. So that's a heart who says, I'm, I'm not even worthy of this. I'm just asking, can I just be a servant? He got up, came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But you know what happened? Father didn't even hardly hear him. Father's too busy calling servants, bring a robe, bring the shoes, bring a new ring. Someone kill the fatted calf, which by the way is what the calf is good for, not making into an idol. But God, the, the father says, come on, let's celebrate. My son who was dead is alive. He was lost, he's found. And he hardly even hears the son. You know what? Father doesn't have to hear the words of the son because he sees the heart. He knows his son has come home broken. He sees the sorrow that is a sorrow of repentance. And he throws his arms around him and draws him in. Confession with sorrowful repentance will lead you home every single time. Well, verse 34, back in Exodus 9, we read Sunday, but read it with me again. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again. And he hardened his heart he and his servants. Secondly, I pointed this out Sunday, verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. In verse one of chapter 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So I point out to you again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And because of that, Pharaoh's heart got hardened. We see that process working through the first several plagues all the way up to the eighth or, or the seventh plague of hail. And then, and then, and only then, now God hardens. And will harden from then on out. But note this. God gives Moses 
another purpose for the plagues. Noted in verse two, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson. This is the transference of truth from one generation to the next. I fear that we have not done a very good job with that in this culture. In the church, we haven't been stellar on transferring truth from one generation to the next and to the next. We have not taken the word. We haven't taken God at his word and haven't taken the word seriously enough that we implant it in our children and teach it in the children. We're trying to. I'm not saying that here at the bridge or, or other fellowships right now aren't trying to, but I think we've got some generations suffering from a lack of the teaching of the word of God, from the watering down of the truth. And God says, Moses, I want you to tell your son and your grandson, and it's not just about his, it's for all of Israel. This is an intention of God with all that's going on, the judgments on Egypt and the glorification of God that's taking place and the taking down of the Egyptian gods and all of these things and the deliverance of Israel. It is also for Israel to teach the Israelite children down through the years, generation to generation. Psalm 145 verse four says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And so we tell our children and we tell our grandchildren and we keep speaking the word of the truth. God will say through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then he says this, don't miss it. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on your, uh, as frontals on your forehead. And he's not talking about putting boxes on your head with all you know, respect to my Jewish brothers and sisters. He's talking about this should be foremost in your thinking, the teaching of the truth from one generation to the next. And think about this. What truths does God want transferred here? Three, he wants the truth of how I made a mockery of the Egyptians. Well, why does that get passed along? Just so we can laugh at Egypt? No. It's all about the peril of unbelief. The peril of unbelief. That one generation needs to tell the next generation, this is what happens when people harden their hearts to God. The peril of unbelief. But God said, also tell them how I performed my signs. One generation needs to tell the next about the power of God. God is powerful. He is potent in your life. He is El Shaddai Almighty, and he is Yahweh. He is present. This is God. How I perform my signs. And the third thing, that you may know that I am the Lord, the person of Yahweh. Three things in verse two. Pass along the peril of unbelief. Pass along the power of God and pass along the person of Yahweh I am. And let's share this in communion. I, I, I just was smiling over there because we didn't talk ahead of time. He shared John 1.18. You see, we can know the person of God in Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, exegeomai, 
It's where we get our word exegesis, where you take a passage and you exegete the passage. It means you break it down so you have full comprehension and understanding. Exegeomai means to declare or to illustrate. This is what Jesus does. He shows us God. Why? So that we may know the person of Yahweh, even as we learn the power of God and recognize the peril of unbelief, pass it on. Every generation needs to know this. Verse three of chapter 10. Moses and Aaron then went to Pharaoh and they said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? This is where we see the hardness of heart really taking hold. There is a lack, complete lack of any humility. Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring, and this is the last plague we'll look at tonight, locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land. You know what a locust looks like. Think grasshopper if you've never actually seen a locust. Same idea. I used to hate that. Mission Hill, Southern California, where I grew up, there was a certain time of year the grasshoppers came out. We had in my neighborhood ice plant everywhere. I think just because it grew like wildfire. And so this ice plant would be on the sides of the hills and the grasshoppers would be down in the ice plant. As kids, we loved to slide down the ice plant because it would burst and be wet and you could slide on it. It was a whole lot of fun. And you'd slide down that ice plant and all of a sudden grasshoppers would just go all around. Ah! Hated them. They were those little bugs. You knew they could hop. There's one five feet away. He can get you, man. The locusts were everywhere. God says, they will cover the surface of the land. No one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped. That's the wheat and the spelt. What is left to you from the hail, they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. And then your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians. Some, note this, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day and Moses turned and went out from Pharaoh. Didn't even wait for a response. Just turned on his heel and left. Pharaoh's sitting there. And Moses is out of there. 450 billion locusts have been killed since January of this year in the worst locust swarm in East Africa in 70 years. Man, this world, pandemic, social unrest, problems galore right and left. It, it, it's incredible. And now we got locusts? Now, I mentioned this locust swarm to you, I think it was a month or six or eight weeks ago. We, we mentioned that it was coming on East Africa, spreading throughout Kenya. And what's amazing here is the Bible says that God says, this will be something neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen. And a guy by the name of Michael Gatiba <laughs> inadvertently quoted that last week. Didn't even know he was doing it. Kelly Shaleski sent me this article and I read through it and I found it fascinating. It says, when the skies darkened suddenly over Gatiba's 10-acre farm in Nakuru County, Kenya, what came pouring down stunned him millions of desert locusts. By the way, probably the same kind of locust is right here, the desert locust. He said it was like a storm. 
Gatiba, 45, said by telephone, it was like hail. They covered everywhere. Even there was no sun. And he said, and I quote, even my grandfather didn't see these things. How many of us have had similar thoughts this year? My grandparents didn't see what we're seeing. I've thought that more than once. There to us. In verse 7 of chapter 10, Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? Open your eyes, man. Look around. We're devastated. We've lost. It's over. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. So he says that we're going to have a, a plague of locusts, and he walks out. And Pharaoh's advisors say, get him back. Don't you realize what's going on? So they bring him back. And he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. But then Pharaoh said, who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, we shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we shall go. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. And then he said to them, Thus may Yahweh be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, take heed, for evil is in your mind. You're trying to trick me, he's saying. Not so. Go now, the men, and serve the Lord. For that is what you desire. And so they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Moses said, there's no compromise. We're taking our kids. We're taking our flocks. We're taking our wives. We're all going. We are all called to worship the Lord. And by the way, that's the way it is. Your entire family is called to worship the Lord. Mothers, fathers, kids, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, we're all called to worship the Lord. This is not just for some of us. Moses said, we are all going out as one big, <laughs> and it will be, happy family. It's an amazing, amazing arrogance on the part of Pharaoh. Still, he's still negotiating. He's still trying to set the conditions for God. And listen, please hear this. His heart was so hard that he could not even see the misery of all his people. He couldn't see how his hardness was devastated, not just him, not just life in the palace, but all the Egyptian people. I was thinking about that earlier today, that we have an old praise song we love to sing around here. It's, it's been around 20 years, so maybe not that old, but open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I wanna see you. I wanna see you. And it's a great song, and it's the right thing to sing. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. That's my greatest desire. But my friends, understand, listen, we get that from Ephesians 1.18. The writer's probably inspired by this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or opened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And so we sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I may see you. And again, we should sing that. But you know what? Part of opening the eyes of my heart is not just seeing the Lord, it's seeing his people. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I might see what you see. That I might have the vision you have. 
How do you know that the eyes of your heart are truly open? You know when you see what God sees, when you love who God loves. When God's people, listen, when God's people are more important to me than myself is, then I am seeing with the eyes of his heart. That's when I know that my heart is for him. As John said, you cannot say you love God and hate your brother. My brother Jake pointed out earlier today, you can't say I love you, Lord, and not love your brothers and sisters. And here's the thing we American Christians, I think, have missed in our demanding rights for ourselves that to follow Jesus means that if it, if it means your salvation, if it's better for you, I will give up my rights. I will set aside my rights and become a bondservant for your sake. Why? For the Lord's sake. Open the eyes of my heart that I may see you, Lord, that I may see your people and learn to love your people the way you do. And by the way, that love landed Jesus on the cross, which is the ultimate abdication of all rights. Exodus chapter 10, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. Verse 13, so Moses stretched out his staff. Notice it's Moses now, not Aaron. So he's coming into his own as the deliverer. Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and Yahweh directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought in the locusts or carried in the locusts. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. And they were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so Again, which means even what's happening right now, even to the end of days, this was the worst locust plague ever to hit Egypt. They covered the surface of the whole land, so the whole land was darkened. They ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Joel the prophet warns that there will be a massive locust swarm in the day of the Lord. You can read about that in Joel chapter one, verses one through seven. There is a locust swarm coming. I believe that he is speaking ahead of time of what John describes in Revelation chapter nine, which is not a typical locust swarm. It is a demonic locust swarm that covers the earth that brings about painful bites while it's taking place during that tribulation. I point that out simply to say that locusts in the Bible are always a sign of judgment. And judgment always falls hard on the one who tries to compromise or commandeer the commandments of God. I'm gonna do it my way, or we're gonna change it just a little bit, or we're gonna flow with culture to say that, yeah, this is offensive, or, or yeah, this is, this is not right. We're just gonna change it because, hey, this is where culture is today. The judgments of God fall hard on those who compromise. In verse 16, 
Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron. Listen to this. He said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. Man, how we downplay sin. Only this once. Not like I've done this before. Oh, really, Pharaoh? This is the eighth plague. And we wouldn't be here at number eight if you hadn't sinned every single time. But okay, he says, only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. And he went out from Pharaoh. Note that time, Moses says nothing. Again, turns on his heel, walks out. And he made supplication to Yahweh. And before we finish this, I've told you every time, the names of these false Egyptian, pagan, empty-headed gods, these idols, well, in this case, there's Min, M-I-N, the Egyptian patron god of crops, and the crops are laid waste. What's remarkable is his annual harvest festival, the festival to Min, probably coincided with the plague of locusts. Just as the people are about to celebrate the crops brought to them by this false god, men, the locusts come and take it away. Isis, Isis is the god who gave flax for clothing. The flax is completely eaten away. Nepri, the god of grain. Anubis, guardian of the fields. And finally, Sinachem was the locust-headed god who protected against the ravages of pests. These are all out to lunch. These gods, non-existent, invented gods of fictitious power that are now totally eviscerated. And by the way, the darkness of the locust that was so thick you couldn't even see the sun in the sky presented a veiled swipe against the chief god of the Egyptians I mentioned before, Amon-Ra. We're gonna see him completely shut off with the plague that follows this one, and we'll talk about that on Sunday. As we come to the end here and conclude, hang with me just a few more minutes. This is so vitally important. I'll tell you, I was sitting there during worship, and I told you I was, I was taking a little time and just praying, trying to get personal with the Lord before I came up. And the thing that came to me was I knew how much we had to cover and what I wanted to share tonight. And, and I remember just, I was thinking, I'd love to be in a house church in China right now because I'd finish tonight and they'd be going, oh, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> I love the thought of just having the whole night. I won't take the whole night. Give me about five more minutes, but pay attention to this. With this eighth plague of locusts, now all the fruitfulness of Egypt, the lush and fertile Nile Delta was gone in an instant. The land is ravaged. The livestock is dead. The entire economy, note this, the entire economy of this world superpower is decimated. For those who put their trust in the economy, in the money cycles of this world, that's how fast it goes away. We were riding high in American economy Three and a half years of the best economy that we've seen in ages. I mean, this economy was smoking hot and no one can deny that. The stats are all there. It was rocking and rolling. And a little 
invisible bug. Knocked us on our backsides and devastated, threw us into a recession. There is no way anyone could have predicted this was coming, that this would happen. But it happened to Egypt. We see it now happening in our world. Same God. Same God is trying to get our attention. I'm convinced. And by the way, this was the same Egypt that this same God had once completely saved from famine through Joseph. What's the difference? No repentance, hard hearts, paganism, an anti-God perspective, something that we see proliferating in American society today. Well, verse 19 tells us the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, literally a sea wind, because the west wind in the land always coming off of, comes from the west, comes from the sea, coming out of the Mediterranean. So a very strong sea wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea, in, in Hebrew, the Yamsup. Some translations say the Reed Sea, but the Reed Sea could not possibly take care of all these locusts. And Yamsup is a phrase that is used of the Red Sea. So I believe that that's absolutely accurate. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. And I remind you now, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then his heart was hardened and finally, the Lord hardened his heart. So let's end with this question and think this through with me. How many times has God saved the world only to have the world head right back into rebellion? How many times? I'll tell you what, in all history, there's only one time God fully judged the world and that was at the flood. Every single time, the world should have been destroyed. Every single time the world deserved to have been destroyed, God has saved us. So many times, we don't even know. I think when we get into eternity, we'll be able to look back and see how many times God saved us from ourselves, saved this world of sin. And yet, what do we do? Go right back into rebellion. I'm saved. Well, now that I'm saved, it's good, it's cool. And right back in we go. How many times has God saved you and you've gone right back into rebellion. Peter said this. Please listen. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now everybody argues, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. But I thought once saved, always saved. Listen to exactly what Peter says. If they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of Jesus. You know what? You can have knowledge of Jesus and not yet be saved. And in fact, you can begin to escape the defilements of the world because, wow, I know that there's a Jesus. I'm not really sure that he's my Lord yet, but man, I'm showing up at church and I'm, I'm being blessed by this and, and life seeming, seemingly getting better. You can escape the defilements of the Lord by knowing who Jesus is without giving him your heart. And Paul is, or Peter here is talking specifically about some false teachers and some Balaam-like people. And so he says, 
if someone's in that position, but then they get entangled again in the defilements of the world and they're overcome, the last state is worse for them than the first. Why? Because now they have some knowledge of Jesus. Before they were just clueless. Now they know the difference. And Peter says, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, Proverbs 26, 11, a dog returns to its own vomit. And Peter adds, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. For Peter, the issue was not Calvin versus Arminianus. It was knowledgeable rebellion. Get that phrase, knowledgeable rebellion. It's I know better, but I'm choosing to rebel anyway. I know the truth, but I'm not gonna live by the truth. Knowledgeable rebellion. By now, in all of these plagues, Pharaoh has acknowledged Yahweh. He has named Yahweh. He has confessed to Yahweh. He has seen the power of Yahweh. He's actually given everything, even recognition of his lordship. Pray to him for me. Uh, Make supplication for me. Cry out to him for me. He has recognized the lordship of Yahweh. But listen, saints and sinners, listen. The plagues, one after another, begin as a tapping on the door and they become a knocking on the door and finally they are a pounding on the door plague after plague after plague and yet by now Pharaoh's heart is shut up tight Pharaoh's heart is on complete and total lockdown Jesus said in Revelation 3.20 I know many of you know this behold I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. But if you refuse to answer, if you slam the door on Jesus, guess what? You not only lock him out, you lock yourself in. You end up incarcerated in your own sin. That's where Pharaoh is at this point. After the locust is gonna come a massive darkness and then the death of Pharaoh's own firstborn son. His heart is that hard, that shut down, that closed off. God can't get in and Pharaoh cannot get out. It's heavy stuff. But I wanna end, I wanna send you out with a promise, a beautiful, wonderful promise And this is a promise that God gave to Israel. It's in the book of Joel. And if you've got your Bibles, you wanna turn one more time, turn to Joel chapter two, or just listen to this. But this promise to Israel is one that God speaks to his people, and yet it speaks the heart of God to anyone who comes to him. It's Joel chapter two, verse 23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. And then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Oh, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am Yahweh your God. There is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. You know what the good news is? In the midst of a pestilence in the world right now, we're coming to that day. That day is promised. That kingdom is coming. It is promised to Israel, but you students of Revelation know that we get to come alongside Jesus and rule and reign with him in that glorious day. So that no matter how bad it gets here, no matter how difficult things may be, that's where we're headed. That's the promise that's coming. God is going to restore all that the locust has stolen. Father, thank you so much for the comfort of your word, for the strength of your word, Lord. Help us, and I want to repeat this in prayer, Father, help us to pass along generation to generation, however many generations are left. Lord, I believe we're in the final generation, but may we yet tell our children clearly of the peril of unbelief. May we, by your spirit, speak clearly about the power of our God. And above all things, Lord, may we in our homes and in our families and among friends and in this world speak of the person of Yahweh in Jesus Christ. Give us voice to your grace, voice to the name of Jesus and distinguish us, Father, in this world as those who love others more than we love ourselves. May your word settle on our hearts now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. <music>